that's one of the things I would say even is, is being humble about things, right? And, you know, always uh, always be curious and not judgmental like Walt Whitman says and, and learn and, and, and take things in all the time because you'd be amazed if you'd be quiet and just listen what you can pick up. <laughs> I got a former Division One athlete with a Ph.D. quoting Walt Whitman. Uh, I just, just wanted to make sure that I had that right. Okay. <laughs>
spend trying to learn something about them. The U.S. government gave a grant of $2.5 million to see if quail would breed more actively while on cocaine. Really? That's actually the truth. I don't actually know the outcome of the, the, the grant study, though, but I'm, I'm going to look into that. Yeah. That's a, I have, I'm, as a former chairman of Quail Limited back in the day, I'd be very interested to hear about that one. Well, nobody wants to hear about us talk about quail, particularly if the quail have not been uh, as populous this year. So maybe we should introduce our first guest we have this morning. Excellent idea. So, uh, everybody, thank you for joining us. Uh, we are joined by a, a friend and, and somebody I've been wanting to get on for a while, Dr. Ryan Azell of Flowtech. And, uh, Ryan, thanks for joining us this morning. Yeah, I appreciate it. I'm really happy to be here this morning. I've, I've been looking forward to it and excited as we kicked off this new year in 2024. Absolutely. That and your kids think you're a stud because you're on a podcast. They do. They were all excited. Of course, my oldest was trying to figure out why in the world I'd have an opportunity like that, but uh, he's always giving me a hard time. He doesn't know how famous dad really is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's a, he's quite the character. He gives me a hard time all the time. So. Now, how many kids do you have now? I have four. Holy. Uh, I have a nine-year-old five-year-old a two-year-old and a three-month-old so needless to say when i'm not working i'm pretty busy at the house yeah after this podcast ryan i'll take you aside and explain to you how this works so you can stop doing this well you know it is quite funny because uh my wife and i had that conversation we figured out uh about number four (laughs) and we 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 addressed that issue (laughs) well that's fantastic that's fantastic so ron tell us a little bit about about uh, about yourself and where you came from and how you got in the business. Obviously, it's going to be pretty interesting to be a uh, PhD with four kids and uh, running a company. I and in his spare time, time, his oh. yeah, his spare time. <laughs> what is your hobby? Just yeah. as a curious question. You know, I I do I still quite quite active in a lot of uh, competitive athletics. I do a lot of hunting and fishing. So, um, you know, I, I think that takes up most of my time. I help coach baseball and stuff with my kids. Practice with them. And uh, do a lot of whitetail deer hunting. Still, you're leaving it to sleep when you're dead, right? That's correct. I, I figure I usually, you know, my day starts at 3:45 in the morning, and I usually get to bed by about nine. So, I'm a pretty tight schedule. And uh, one thing I've learned here, you know, in the last few years is how to really prioritize and make make use of valuable <laughs> valuable time. Yeah, <laughs> I would think so. <clears throat> no I, doubt. I found it's it's better to get started early than later. I'm a morning guy, 100%. I, I love it. I'm a straight morning guy. So, Well, we appreciate you joining us this morning. So tell us a little bit about uh, about your past. Tell us tell us where you're from. Well, you know, it's a, it's a funny story. You know, I, I'm actually from a very small rural town in southwest Mississippi, a little town called Summit. It's probably in between Jackson, Mississippi, and New Orleans, Louisiana, right there on the Mississippi-Louisiana line. My mother went to Chattawaw. Uh, well, so my parents' house and where I grew up is about 15 minutes from Chattawa. And both my parents were born and buried in Macomb. Really? Three of the kids were born in Macomb. Wow. And My siblings. You know, and, and I always, we're from the Lake Dixie Springs community. Which I is, know. You know, yeah. and uh, we live on the lake and grew up in a, I kept a house there for a long time and then, you know, sold it back probably about 2015 or so. But um, I get back there quite a bit. Um, but definitely a small town. We have one red light. Starts blinking at 10 o'clock at night. Um you know, I come from a very, uh, you know, I would say humble family. Uh, my dad, he's uh, 73 years old. He's never been on a plane. So 
you know, when I look at, you know, I think I'd a lot like of that to drove. congratulate him. I think that's an accomplishment. <laughs> yeah, he, he was an engineer. He worked for Energy for uh, about forty-five years before he retired. And my mom was a, was a banker uh, for fifty-plus years. Uh, she retired from uh, senior vice president at Regions Bank, and uh, at all their multitude of changes from AmSouth, deposit guarantee, Regions, et cetera. Senior banker and engineer, so you didn't have a genetic head start at all, did you? Not at all. Not, no expectation. <laughs> So, but no, I, I um, from, from there, I, I, you know, always growing up, I had a pursuit to uh, be a physician. Yep. And so when I went to undergraduate, I had a great opportunity. I played uh, Division One football, so went on athletic scholarship uh, to University of Central Florida. Um, I left UCF uh, my senior year, so but I actually graduated from Millsaps College in Jackson, a, a private where school. my mother graduated from. Yeah. yeah. And and I would consider Millsaps to be a pretty elite school. It's it is. A, very difficult. Um, you know, transfer and get caught up on hours. I graduated from there with the sole intent of going to medical school. And believe it or not, I, uh, I worked for Dr. Ruth Frederick. She was head of neurology at River Oaks and at UMC. She was on the board uh, to get into med school. I was accepted into medical school. And right when we were getting ready to start in August, um, we had, I had a, there's something happened uh, in my life that I, I had a change. And decided uh, I didn't want to be a practicing physician. I always wanted to be an ER physician. And uh, there was an incident happened when I was shadowing a, a physician that changed my thought on, did I want to do that for the rest of my life? And I had a conversation with Dr. Fredericks and she basically you know, told me, she said, those things happen, you'll get used to it. But in my mind, being a physician is something really special. Your heart has to be in there. Your patients need you to be 100% in that all the time. And if you have any doubts, you probably yeah. shouldn't do it. What happened? So I was shadowing a, a doctor named David Smith, one of the great ER physicians in Mississippi, and um, there was actually a car wreck, and it was a van had hit an 18-wheeler head-on. And, and on a major highway, the mother and two of the children were, were DOA at the scene, and two of the other children were at severe brain trauma. And they were bringing them to the hospital. I went with David to help triage, and then the dad, had to come to the hospital with the only child that wasn't injured and he was at a baseball game and these children were in really bad shape we couldn't really do anything with that rural hospital we were life lighting two helicopters from jackson to come down and get them but they were staggered about 45 minutes apart and we went in there and davis sat down with two highway patrol they were telling about the rest of his family what had happened and Dave was giving him the status of the, the two kids that were there and basically um when it all came down, he said, look, they're in really bad shape. We we're going to do our best to get them to the emergency room at UMC. And the man leaned over and grabbed David by the hand, and he said, I trust you'll do the best thing you can to maintain what I have left in my family. So David and I got up, and I was talking to him, and we left, and he made a decision. He picked a child that was in the best shape to put on the first helicopter and took it. That child, we got to the hospital. Uh, they address it you know she was in a coma for about three weeks but survived the other child died as we were loading him onto their helicopter the second mm -hmm. helicopter if we had flipped it around we'd have lost both died. of them yep. and i walked out of the hospital like man because he had to go back in there and tell him about the other child and kind of where it was and you know and i walked out and i was like man i don't know if i want to do that all the time or not because my whole life, trauma, ER, yeah. Yeah, that's what I wanted to do. And um, 
was like, I just don't know if I want to do this. So I had doubts about it. And, and so I, I decided not to pursue that. Um, Dr. Fredericks helped me out. She called a colleague of hers, uh, Dr. Charles McCormick, who has a uh, water-soluble polymer drug delivery research at Southern Miss. Uh, Southern Miss's industrial polymer science program is one of the best in the world. And uh, she and Dr. McCormick went to Millsaps together. And because she had won the Founders Medal at Millsaps, and wow. she was extremely brilliant. Lady. Yeah. And um, and so Dr. McCormick brought me down, put me on a full stipend based on my MCAT score. I hadn't even taken the GRE yet, <laughs> and with the promise of I'd take the GRE. And so I came down to Southern Miss and uh, got in their PhD program there. Um, and so the rest was kind of history from that point. We got into doing advanced drug delivery research uh, for Genzyme Pharmaceuticals, a lot of things, and then 9/11 hit. And when 9-11 hit, you would not believe the amount of DOD and DARPA funding that came to material science program for stealth coatings, weapons development, advanced robotics, all those different things that we were doing there. And believe it or not, the things that we were doing for Genzyme works phenomenally at think weapons applications for friction reducers, for advanced torpedoes, uh, plastics, and different components. Okay, yeah, okay, I hadn't thought about that. So my career evolved into heading up some DARPA and DOD grants. And, and I spent a short time doing some defense contracting work out of graduate school when I finished my PhD. And most of my, you know, dissertation is written around stimuli-responsive polymers for drag reduction. And uh, what was unique about those is we were putting layered uh, torpedo firing solutions to where the torpedoes would go 30% faster and thus 30% further. So you can imagine if you've ever seen Hunt for Red October, their timing whenever they fire well they're going faster than they realize and they go yeah. further and so they, they gave us a little bit of an advantage and post all that fast forward i was in dc uh speaking at a uh, uh acs convention around these uh you know control polymerizations and different things that we were doing to make these coatings and a gentleman walked up to him this brilliant guy that i met his name was ian rob and ian was a technology fellow for halliburton and he, yes, and he asked me, yes. and he, you know, he passed away. He yes, had cancer. Right. And um, he, uh, he came up to me, and uh, he said, have you ever thought about working in the oil and gas business? And I said, I said, well, you know, I'm from South Mississippi. I said, so 70% of the people I know <laughs> work in I work in oil and gas business. I said, including my grandfather and my uncles, um, you know, I'm very familiar with it. And he said, I would love for you to, you know, interview with us. We're looking to beef up our R&D programs at Halliburton. And we're looking for some, you know, bright guys that got some field experience and get out and do some things. And so uh, I agreed, and I flew to Houston, and the first person I met was Jeff Miller. And I had opportunity to interview, present the work we had done. And at that time, Jeff was being uh, brought in to be the vice president of Bayroid Drilling Fluids. Okay. So instead of going into production enhancement for friction reducers and uh, slick water development, they pulled me into Bayroid, and I worked directly for Jeff and Bayroid. And that's how my career in the and what year was that? That was in 2005. Okay, and uh, and that's how everything got kicked off. And so I started there, uh, ran research and development. We did about 51 patents uh, for for Halliburton in the drilling fluids and completions and uh, slick water and all the different components. And then I had you know I was lucky. I was identified as a you know a high potential employee inside Halliburton, and so I got to kind of go under a mentorship with Jeff. And, you know, I'd meet with him periodically. And I came in his office one day and I asked him directly, <laughs> I've been working for about a year, I said, how do I, how do I get the position you're in right now? 
and he sat back in his chair and he uh, undid his tie and he said, well, let's talk about that for a minute. And he said, if you really want to do that, you know, we'll put you on a path to do that. He said, but the first thing is, is you got to go be a mud engineer. And so I went to mud school and a PhD <laughs> and went out in the field, ran mud and HTHP. I have never seen a PhD doing mud in the field and I've been doing this for a while. We did a podcast with Jeff yeah. Yeah. Uh, last year. That was just fascinating. And I've gotten to know Jeff uh, in, in a couple of different ways. Um, well, we he, we've got PhDs, Jim, but we just got different kind of PhDs. Different. We got those we got those post hole digger PhDs. <laughs> well, you know what was great about Jeff is you know Jeff, Jeff's got the you know the uh, kind of the cowboy background, and I mean he and I hit he off went, really he well. He went to college on a rodeo scholarship. Yeah, yeah. And, and he's he's great down to earth, and I mean, but I've seen him in tights from wrestling and high school at St. Mark's. <laughs> he looks better than a cowboy hat. I'm just saying. <laughs> But, you know, you, you couldn't imagine working uh, with a better group of guys that I was brought into oil and gas with. You know, I had uh, multiple, almost 13, 14 years international experience. Uh, I got to work with Mike Coogan-Tobler, Joe Rainey, uh, a lot of awesome guys over there. Over, over okay, let's let's go back a little bit. We passed yeah. off some of this up way <laughs> too fast for me, okay? So you played Division One at US, UCF. Mm -hmm. What position? So I was a linebacker, outside linebacker. Oh, what so they you're mean too. Okay. Yeah, what they call an edge nowadays, right? Yeah. Um, but I came to find out that what I thought was fast was different in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> and so I made a, you know, I, I took advantage of, you know, some relatively average intellect that I had. And I said, let me let me see if I can play offense because it running plays and different pieces. And so I, I was like a round peg fitting in to play tight end. You know, at, at 6'5", 270 pounds. I was going to say, you're a little short, I thought. When I, you know. <laughs> but, hey, it was, um, but it worked out really well playing tight end for me. And, um, you know, I, I enjoyed it. Got school paid for. And, you know, got to travel all over the U.S. to play in some big stadiums. So you actually played and graduated. I did. On time. On time. Wow. That puts and you it, in a rarefied atmosphere. Well, the, the crazy – I had a year of eligibility because I got redshirted my freshman year. Most linemen, you know, get a redshirt year. And uh, I played in four games my freshman year but still had a still had a redshirt. And, yeah. um, you didn't yeah. offer to play at Millsaps? Well, I played one year there. You Did you really? Yeah, yeah and I, I was I was a flashy guy at Millsaps coming in. I played, oh, yeah. I played, I played both ways. So um, That's I, cool. I played our uh, a defensive end on pass rushing downs. And then, you know, I made all conference at tight end. And, uh, yeah, I had an opportunity to play in the uh, play in the NFL. Uh, well, it was interesting. My sister cheered at Southern Miss when Brett Favre was there. And Buzz Cook, who was Brett Favre's agent, I caught passes. Brett used to throw to us at Southern during camps. And I spoke to him about doing it. And he said, man, he said, I would use that brain for something else besides ramming people and, and go on with it. So, I didn't. Hard even. to argue, it, you know, at this yeah. point. It, it is. It is. But it's exciting. Look, I, I'm telling you, I, I remember the first – Division one college game I had, we were playing at Nebraska. They were defending national champions. And I remember we came out, and that was on the old Astro turf. Yeah. And when their nice. kickoff team came out and the guy raised his hands, the crowd got so loud, the ball fell off the tee. The ground was shaking. And I was like, I st I'm looking right now, I got chill bumps thinking about it. It was like <laughs> the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. And we played Ole Miss, South Carolina, Mississippi State, Nebraska, all of them that first year. So it was uh, it was awesome. Uh, it, was, it was a good time. That's fabulous. Yeah, now, it. I have a little bit of trivia for you. Do you know that Starkville, Mississippi had the first Ralph Lauren outlet store in the country? I did not know that. Everybody thinks of Ole Miss as being preppy. <laughs> Starkville beat that one. I thought that was pretty good. 
you know, it's interesting, too, because when you look at Mississippi, people always ask me about it. I said, well, you got Mississippi State, which is like Texas A&M. You got Ole Misses, which is like Texas. Right. I was like, and then you have some, uh, you know, Southern Misses, like your uh, Texas Tech kind of thing, right? And uh, it's a um, it's, it's a great place. I mean, and, oh, and yeah. I uh, – but, you know, I, could, I would have never bet on that having the first outlet, Ralph Lauren place at Starkville. <laughs> Franklin Myers is a graduate. Shout out to Franklin. <laughs> There, yeah. there's, there's a Mississippi Mafia, Mary Bass and some other people here in Houston. Yeah. That includes all of us. So. Well, you know, in the Woodlands, you go up, uh, there used to be a, a little sports grill kind of up by my house. Every Saturday, it was bombarded with Mississippi State people. And, uh, I mean, they come in and watch the games together. They got they have a good alumni presence up in up in this area. Yeah. Tim Duncan's a Mississippi State guy. That's right. That's right. I've got a lot of family from Mississippi, fond memories of the state of Mississippi. My father wouldn't let me go to Ole Miss. Yeah, he said it was a party school because it is. That's he played football, and that's where he graduated from. Really? Yeah. Okay. Both my parents went to Ole Miss, and my dad was known as Bud Man apparently in school. But uh, I decided not to party, so I went to Southern Methodist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, the, the, I tell you, if, if you get an opportunity, I took some. Uh, I actually took some customers to see Texas A and M and Ole Miss play this year, just to take somebody to the Grove. I mean, the Grove is a unique place. It is. It, it's very unique. And it it's is. It's something good to go see at least once, you know, at Ole Miss. I've got a black lab from Oxford, Bet. She's one of those, uh, uh, oh, gosh, wild rose dogs. Okay. Yeah, that's a that's a neat neat kennel. Well, it's fascinating. You know, you and I have got a lot in common. I had a lot in common with Jeff, with Rodeo and, and all that. But uh, uh, my Dr. Fredericks was Dr. Kim Dunn. Mm-hmm. And I got to see the business side of medicine that most people do. And coming from a family of doctors, and a grandfather was a physician in Mississippi who uh, was killed by a drunk driver, actually delivered. Uh, um, we just honored him the other day uh, at the uh, uh, Bear Bryant Awards uh, dinner in, in Houston. Peyton Manning, uh, Archie Manning. My uh, grandfather delivered Archie Manning in this world. But anyways. Uh, I have Archie Manning's chin strap from the 1969 Liberty Bowl. <laughs> I was in about the ninth grade, and I got out on the field because I had a giant rebel flag. And back then, you'd run out and get the chin strap from your hero because that's what you could take home. And I was the first one to make it to Archie. No kidding. Yeah, and then 50 years later, when I had my picture taken with him in an SMU deal, uh-huh. I told him I'd been stalking him all these years. <laughs> well, that's a that's a great family. But anyways, we Jim and I, you gotta you gotta keep us uh, you know on track here. We'll we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll divert occasionally. So so fascinating. You you worked with Jeff. Did uh, did you get a love for wing shooting like uh, Jeff has? You know, probably probably not nearly that caliber. Yeah. No. You know, and it, I was always uh, again. You know, I think the majority of my career. I had the the luxury of uh, working the Eastern Hemisphere for a lot of t- a lot of my right. tenure, and which was great because you got you know for me growing up in South Mississippi it was like a blessing. Yeah. I got to see the whole world and see things that you would have. I, I still go home and I tell people about things that I've seen and been able to do, and they go. It's almost like they don't believe it. Right? So list us where you've lived. Yeah. Yeah. So my my first assignment was in Iraq. And so I, I would stay in Dubai yeah. for a week and then go into Basra for two. Well, that was when we first started that business up. Then I moved into the eastern province in Saudi and lived in Dharan. Mm-hmm. I was there for a couple of years. Um, 
left there, ran out. That's where I got my first real operations cut in. Okay. was in the Middle East. And every time I talked to Jeff about one of these, he said, well, he said, at some point in your career, Ryan, you're going to have to ask somebody to go. And he said, you know, it's a lot easier if you've been there. Mm-hmm. And so the next time I moved to our the startup deep water operations we had in East Africa. So I covered Djibouti to Cape Town, living out of Tanzania in Dar es Salaam. Oh, nice. You're and, on the right side. You know, and yeah. we, well, that was for two and a half years. And then I took over the west side. I moved ah. to Luanda and was in Angola uh, for a few years and ran the DRC, Angola, Namibia, and the other side. Um, what, year, what, what year were you in Rwanda? Right when the downturn hit in 15. Okay. I, I got there. We had, There was 37 deep water rigs drilling. And it rolled into 16. There was like seven. Yeah, and it was a tough, tough time uh, in Luanda back then, um, you know. And then I had an opportunity, uh, you know. Uh, Mike Hugan told me I started working for him in the Eastern Hemisphere at that point. He was a senior vice president of the ESA region, mm-hmm. and so I took over as the ESA region manager uh, for Bayroid Drilling Fluids, and uh, and then we combined regions. So I had ESA and Eurasia, which was awesome. I remember he said, "I need you to Mike call me." Him and Joe were there, and they were like, hey, I need, I need you to go on a little road trip and learn the area. So I left on January the 3rd. I got back in March. By the time <laughs> I went everywhere, in the, and I, let me tell you, going to Siberia and Sakhalin Island in January, not, I mean, I, not real wise. Not fun. You know, it's, it's pretty brutal, especially when the plane gets iced up and you have to take that long train back. But um, but it, it was it, look it was awesome. I mean like it was in hindsight learning, it was an adventure, right? It was a learning experience. Did of they a use did they use vodka on the on the de-icing on that? <laughs> a little bit of that and a little bit of uh, polyethylene. <laughs> <laughs> More so, vodka. But uh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, polyethylene glycol. So it was uh, <laughs> which you don't want any animals around from that stuff because you know pretty toxic. But it was um, it was amazing. I mean, and it was constantly you know. You were getting to work with IOCs, the, the independents, the national oil companies, dealing with unions, joint ventures, uh, deep water, uh, tough land jobs, uh, new market entries, fixed exit countries. It was just, I mean, it's a learning experience of a lifetime. And, you know, and, and I always have my reservations. Like, I wouldn't do that because my uncles or some of them would always go 28, 28. I was like, I'd never do that. Let me tell you, it was some of the best time of my life. And I always, you know, one of the things I'd always tell people is, don't be scared to step out of the door and take that chance because you, you'll you get to see and do things that will change your life yeah. and give you a totally different perspective. And um, the one thing it does do is when you come back home and you see the things that go on these days here in the U.S., you're just like, man. Roll your eyes. Yeah, like, I mean, we have, like, really not that bad problems, and we bicker over stuff in comparison to what you see in some other, some, some other areas. You know? When I went to work for Western Geophysical, uh, I'd never been out of the country except maybe across the border at Tijuana with my family when I was nine. And uh, I, the first thing I did was talk myself into a, an overseas assignment. And I spent the next 15 years working as a geophysicist engineer almost exclusively overseas and lived different places, you know, London, Singapore, Australia, different places. And and you never get rich. There's two types of, of geoscientists, the ones who stay home and work for Amico and then quit and go drill the prospects they always wanted to that Amico wouldn't drill, and they get rich. Mm. And then there's guys like us from Mississippi who have never <laughs> been anywhere, and we decide we want to see the world. We get to see the world, but we never get rich. But in terms of experiences, and yeah. and I agree that the the you'd go home and tell people what the trip was like, um, and what some of these places are like, and. And you read the paper and you realize that people just have so little perspective. Only 14% of Americans 
have a passport and and have been outside of the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. Mm-hmm. 28% total have passports, but 14% have been outside of those areas. And that's it. Yeah. And I think that's sad. Yeah, I, I, I believe it. I, I, you know, and that, again, I, it, was, it was just, it was a blessing. I, uh, you know, a lot of my friends, my family, you know, my dad, he never could understand it. My dad's always had a chip on his shoulder for me not being a physician. And I, I love him to death. <laughs> a, a million good things about me I get from my dad. Uh, the OCD nature, the follow through, the finish what you start, all those different components. And um, But he never understood why in the world I, w- I would go do those things. And, you know, looking back, and even, even my wife, that um, she moved, we got married after I'd moved back from the Middle East. And so she made sight unseen straight to Tanzania, Angola, everywhere and i mean tough woman i like that she's a trooper and, and she's how a did trooper. she enjoy that she loved it yeah because i first did some hghp work with chevron in thailand and i was over there working while we were dating and i said hey and she she had just got a passport and she had been to like cozumel or somewhere right? yeah and i said um i said hey you want to come see me in thailand she's like send me a ticket and so she came all the way around the world i sent security to go get her in at the airport in bangkok and she stayed two weeks with me in Bangkok. And while I was working, she was out with a, a friend of mine who was a country manager there, his wife. They went around, and they would send me pictures from, like, ruins. They were down at, you know, feeding the monkeys and doing whatever else you could think about, riding elephants and all kind of stuff. I mean, she'll, she'll get out and go. That's she fun girl. I like that. And, she's, you know, she's from, uh, she's from southeast Texas. She's from Silsby, right north of Beaumont. Yeah. yeah. You know, so she's a, she is a character, and she's always been the background of – the things I've done really well, I'll, I'll say that. The only oil field I ever personally directed was in, involved with the discovery it was an onshore field in Thailand, mm. the Bungya oil field. Was it was it high temperature? Uh, no, what? No, but it wasn't a very good oil field. But we found it, <laughs> produced it, and so I had to go. I spent probably uh, without living there. I spent more time in Thailand than any place else. So I can imagine how much I didn't. I didn't get to do all the touristy stuff your wife did, but it's a fascinating country, and I congratulate you for being married to a woman who's. Got that kind of spirit, but yeah. you know it, it got to a point though. With kids, got to a certain age, it got really difficult. Our uh, when we had once we had two, uh, my oldest son, it was a little easier. You know, he grew up in Africa, um, and what a great childhood! God, you know, no he's got more stamps in his passport than most adults, and um, he's always like, "Dad, when are we getting on a plane and going somewhere?" Kind of kid, right? That's the one that gives me a hard time about being on the podcast, right? Yeah, <laughs> he's a character, and um, but whenever you you know you, you look back, once we started to have two, yeah. I was on the road 300 days out of the year. It started getting really difficult. Doesn't work. You know, really difficult. And, um, you know, it kind of that's where you look at evolutionary steps in your career at that point, things you can do to, to be around. Be so when did you leave Halliburton? I would have been in 2019 and, and came over. Okay, and how many kids did you have at that point? Two. That was when you had two. Okay. Two. I had two, and then I've had we had two more since I've been at Flowtech. Yeah. You know, I thought we were done at two, honestly. And uh, we had two boys. And then my uh, my wife wanted to try for a girl, and then we had one, and we, we thought we were done. And I was sitting in the playroom at the house one <coughs> day with the kids, and she comes in there and she's holding at one of the tests, and she's like, "I've never seen it turn this fast before." I was like, "What?" <laughs> so here's number four. And uh, but as you know, I, I, I believe it like this is the you know the Lord doesn't put tasks on you that you can't handle, and uh, you stay focused, and it just it's just one more step of just being organized, right, and prioritize the time. That's that's one of the biggest things in comparison to the roles like I have now is time's extremely valuable and you got to make sure that you're allocating the proper amount of time to, to certain things and it becomes yeah. extremely important I have to remind you to 
of a Boudreaux Clotilde joke about okay. friction reducers and and uh, children. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I got some of that with me. If you need some, yeah. Okay, yeah. that sounds like that might would be a. Uh, might would be one of those that Bob Saget joke that gets worse and worse and worse. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I remember that. One. Yeah. The interesting part when I was a Southern Miss is the actual uh, uh, the gentleman. Uh, so that was on my uh, dissertation committee. Dr. Robert uh, Lockhead actually invented KY jelly and all those different things too. For no kidding. Yeah. And Dr. Charles Hole invented the stealth coating that's on the uh, B fifty two the bombers the stealth bombers. Wow. Yeah. And well, there's a lot of cool folks at Southern Miss back then. You know, Southern Miss, Auburn University, there are a couple other universities uh, that are in the South that have some unique research and development and uh, relationships with the DOD and DARPA, et cetera. That's right. uh, Matter of fact, the inside of the Pentagon is painted from a low VOC content paint developed at Southern Miss. Really? Not everybody would know that. Mm -hmm. I was there when it was developed. <laughs> it just, it, it, you know, it was amazing. When they first started this, uh, the, the, the DARPA things, there was a guy named Craig Hawker. He was the chief technical officer at uh, IBM came there. And I remember, this is when you know you're supposed to take a step change in research. When these guys come in and they start talking about stuff. And he, he, he put up, a, his first slide was, he put up there, it showed a 50 cent piece. You know, one of those JFK 50 yeah. cent pieces. And it had a black square. It was about half the size of that 50 cent piece. This was in 2001. And he goes, anybody know what this is? We're like, a microchip, you know, didn't know what it was. He said, this is a 10 terabyte hard drive. In 2010, I bought my first one terabyte hard drive and it was big as a VCR. Yeah, yeah. it looked like a suitcase. That was in 2001 where the technology was and how it slowly gets out to the public versus what they had then. then. So you can imagine where it potentially is. You got now. to play with some fun stuff, man. Yeah, that's, that's some really cool things. And the, you know, the, the stuff that goes down there, goes on down at Stennis is really cool. They do all kind of, you know, uh, I would say things around aeronautics and jet propulsion and all kind of cool stuff down there. It's, it's pretty neat. But you're right. It's interesting how some schools develop, you know, that and, and some don't. I got a friend in Alabama, but you're dead right on that. In schools that you wouldn't think would mm-hmm. have the, you know, you go, oh, yeah, that'd be something MIT would do or Berkeley or whatever. Yeah. But no, Southern Miss, well, Auburn and, University. You know, our, our joint with the, with Genzyme Pharmaceuticals, the joint research group was Dr. George Whitesides at Harvard. And so we had a meeting once a quarter with him. So, you know, it gives you the caliber and link between, yeah. what, you know, what they do over there. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. And they play football, so it's uh, yeah. that's questionable here and there. <laughs> Back in the nineties, went when uh, uh, what's the coach Jeff um, was? There, they won like five or six conference championships in a row. They were phenomenal. Dayus Thomas that played for the. Uh, Ravens. It was outside linebacker play for the Patriots. Got like three Super Bowls. Was a defensive end back then, and um, but they fell off for a bit, and now now they're they're trying to get back up. A million years ago, you took our coach Bobby Collins after he left SMU mm. after the debacle. You know, some of the some of the most fun people in this world are from Southern Mississippi. Do you know that? And some of the best looking women. I don't mean to be sexist here. It's the weirdest thing. Mississippi has produced more Miss Americas than anybody but maybe Texas. And I don't know if it's in the water or something, but you walk through the campus at Ole Miss or Southern Miss. I don't know about Mississippi State so much, but it's something in the water. They're amazing people. Well, and, and per capita on the athletes, if you look at NFL players per total headcount of the state, they're they're one or number two 
in the country. Um, when you look at Jerry Rice, Brett Favre, yeah. Walter Payton, uh, Cooper Carl, I got from my hometown, 13 years, uh, first team all pro lineman. I mean, there's there's tons of them. They're all over the place. Even in my when I came out of high school, from when I was in say coming into high school in the ninth grade to when I graduated, there's about 17 guys went to NFL from Macomb Summit area. 17. My, I remember. I remember. And you walk around. My father you know, never let me forget. Yeah. You know, I'm like an average sized guy around there. I mean, everybody's. My buddies will come home. I'll have friends that you know. Particularly, I've had some guys from overseas that I got to know will come back and come back to my camp on the river in Mississippi, and they see all my friends. They're like, everybody's six five, six six. <laughs> uh, I got I'm, another buddy of mine, Ernie. He's like six seven, three fifty. I mean, they're just big guys. Yeah. You know? And you know, pretty pretty good athletes, most of them. So, Excellent. talk to us about your education, your experiences, uh, both in graduate school and Halliburton, um, and, and how that is being utilized at Flowtech today. Tell us a little bit about Flowtech as well. Yeah, you know, it, it's, uh, they're 100% directly related. I can say this is that, um, you know, I was, I had a unique opportunity in that what I actually did in graduate school applied directly to what I had an opportunity to build my career on at Halliburton. So, when I got there, I mean, the polymer applications and drilling fluids, completion fluids, and frac fluids was just, you know, it was a plethora of things we could do. So we got into evolving, you know, like I say, 50 plus patents on multitude of things that, it, you know, at one point in time, we had commercial looking at it. I, it had generated about $10 billion in revenue on just six of the patents uh, that we had, you know, advanced drilling fluids and stuff like that. So it, it was great, but the part that, that really evolved in the career was actually getting into the business acumen component to it because intellectual property is great, but it's great only when it when it either protects other IP or it generates revenue and profits, right? That becomes the big, what's the ROI on the things you're doing? So you learn a lot about, you know, the R&D process and matching it to business opportunities globally and sure. understanding that process to get it maximized. That's where, you know, the big parts of innovation come around. And so I had a great opportunity, you know, the big red machine is a great thing to learn how to do that, right? How they funnel those things in and how they, they deploy that. More importantly, how they invest in training and their people. I had a phenomenal opportunity to go through this Texas A&M program there, including the Presidential Leadership Excellence Program, which, you know, you essentially earn almost like an EMBA along the way and learn how to pick up the business acumen along the way. And, and then I would say the opportunities to go to fix it exit countries, new market entries, resurrecting the brand in certain areas, all those led to honing skills that were perfect for the opportunity at Flowtech. And, and those usually aren't skills well-developed in PhD chemists <laughs> and engineers, with no offense. That's, I was a geophysicist. You, you don't see a whole lot of you know CEOs running around the oil business who are geophysicists. That's just not, they don't learn the business side of things. Seismic industry is a great example. Yeah. So I, I think that's interesting that you cared and and the opportunity you got to learn was fabulous. Well, yeah, it, it was. It, you know, and I still I credit I credit some really good leadership guys that I was around to see, you know, talking with with Joe Ranning's like a legend, right? Mm -hmm. And to have the real conversations, I had the opportunity. He would pick the phone up as I was a coming up guy in Eastern and call me and ask me how things were going, and I talked to him about stuff, and he he would say, I wouldn't spend too much time on that. I'd focus on this or I would do these things. And they give you that little nudge along yeah. the way. And he would throw you in the water deep enough to see how good you could swim just before you go under. They, 
they pop you right back up, right, and, and help you out. And you can't, you can't, you can't read that kind of experience in books. Right. You, you get to go out there and, and learn it yourself. And um, so it was a great thing. And you know, and, and I was lucky enough. I had a you know a well a supported career inside inside the organization. And to this day, you hear me talk about. It, I have so much respect for that organization. Um, and you know, I had this opportunity at Flowtech. Well, back in 2000, when I was still in R&D at Halliburton, Flowtech's evolution of its uh, surfactant nanotechnology, the uh, renewable resource terpenes and the dipentines they were putting to enhance reservoir performance, all those things were coming into the market. And, you know, Halliburton, we, they were a big user of that technology. Right. Actually helped bring that into the company. We tested it. We put it in drilling fluids. We did a lot of things. I even had some joint intellectual property. So I was aware of Flowtech for almost 15 years, uh, it, what their technology was, how it worked. You know, and then along the way, the businesses evolved, and, you know, and, and there were some strategic steps potentially. You know, they just got into a little bit of difficulties, you know, in terms of the way the business was performing. And so, you know, a guy approached me, a recruiter approached me about the opportunity to, to come to Flowtech. You know, I looked at the numbers and, you know, they'd been on a, a skid of revenue and, and losing EBITDA performance, et cetera. And, but I was like, my whole career had been trying to rebuild programs like that. And it, I knew the, the core, yeah, the core DNA of that, of that organization was good around innovation and technology. And as, you know, chemistry being a common value creation platform there. Well put, yeah. Um, and so the hole that was in my resume was, Everybody had always said, well, you've done it inside of Halliburton. It's got cash. It's got support. You've got a big shield. It's your second job. That, yeah. yeah. And so could you, could you do it without all that? Could you go in there and, you know, resurrect an organization? Could you deploy a strategy under the stress? Could you rebuild a brand? Could you do those things? And, I mean, that stuff attracted me like, like a magnet. And so uh, knowing what I was getting into, you know, came over and, and it's been quite a ride, you know, and I, I think that, um, and, you know, Jim, you and I have talked throughout most of the ride, right? <laughs> yes. Um, and and I, I think, you know, I think we, we, we've got that organiz organization going in a solid, you know, direction and um, rebuilding the brand, how we, the service delivery components, how we balance contracts, et cetera. But all those things are directly related to, you know, what I've been doing for 20 plus years in, in the past. And it was amazing how they tie together. I, it was amazing to me even how much, you know, how the business design or moving drilling fluids looks like what we do on the completion side. This is a logistics game, right? And yeah. can you bring the innovation? Yep. And can you can you make evolutionary technology changes along the way while you're looking for that revolutionary piece on here on the outside? You yeah. know, and focus on service quality and safety. You know, and, and, and instead of just developing a product, it's everything having to do with the development of the project, including the people that make it. That's right. And, and the HR concerns. That's right. Yeah, that's a much broader envelope as a, as a president of a company than <laughs> anything you can do on a division level. That's right. Because on a division level or a region <laughs> or whatever, you always have someone to pass it up to. And when you're the president, it only gets – it stops at you, as they say. Well, and, the, and, the, and, and a great part about it is – and I would say the learning curve came. Uh, the learning curve came because there was the aspect of running the business. Like all the things we're talking about now, which were stuff I felt prepared – very comfortable at doing. And as I evolved from being a senior vice president of Flowtech to president of just a chemistry, then chief operating officer, then president of the company, now CEO, I had to learn about investor relations 
shareholder communications. I'm sorry. And the expectations <laughs> on all that. And, you know, how I go talk to a customer is totally not the same of how I talk to creation of shareholder value and what we're doing um, from that aspect. And particularly, you know, shareholders who may or may not be familiar with the industry and, and different components. So it was an accelerated evolution. Trial by fire. Years. That's right. And, um, you know, I, I would think it was definitely about direction and not perfection, and I would say. <laughs> no, that's well put. And, uh, but I think, you know, it's been an exciting time. And I, I honestly, I have enjoyed every uh, every second of it. And whether I'm a sadist or, or what, I just I just like the stress. So it's been good. So talk to us about some of the things y'all are doing to differentiate what people know from Flotex past to you what know, y'all are doing today. You know, I, I look at it as, you know, Let's start fundamentally that the, the company itself, the, the approach, again, I, I'll say it again, is around chemistry as a common value creation platform. And what, what we saw were with Flowtech, I would say from about 2017, 2018 to when we came on board at, you know, at the end of 2019 was there was a little bit of brand uh, destruction. We had mm-hmm. some service quality issues and you guys know you have a few of those in some big basins like the Permian Basin. They're hard to Word recover. Word gets fast, yeah. They're hard to recover. Yeah. Um, there is also our ability, you know, if you look at the evolution of how completions went from, say, 2012 to 2022, the guys at Liberty did a great study when they showed how the engineering changed, the cost changed, and how you did the disintermediation of the chemistry from the pumping, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I was saying 17, when slick water really came on, 17 yeah. or 18, Flowtech took a right when it should have took a left in terms of understanding how we could deliver that process and the cost structure to do that and being able to move friction reducers and some of the other small molecule chemistries that complement the proprietary technology we have around reservoir improvement with our complex nanofluids. And so we had to kind of repair a little bit of brand damage, a little bit of relationship damages on the service quality side, and we had to restructure this organization to where we could cost effectively deliver you know the the bread and butter chemistry that's complemented by what we do really well which is the surfactants clay controls scale inhibitors and stuff that really improve the overall return on investment out of that asset and so you know that we we put together a a five-year strategy about how to do that and and i would say you know it, it coming out of covid you know it hit the bottom and, you know, we had gotten down to, it was pretty painful because we only had basically at that point in time, two customers that represented 90% of the revenue. And if they had an off week, I mean, we had an off quarter. Yeah. Right. Right. But, you know, you look at where we are now, um, we have an even split between EMP operators and service companies. Uh, we don't have a single customer that represents more than 8% of the revenue. We're extremely much more diversified. We, we're in every basin. Uh, we, we took millions of dollars of costs out of the operation and it's just fundamental blocking and tackling uh setting kpis and goals out there what success looks like and pushing through it right you say it's just it's really simple it's easy i mean (laughs) i don't understand anybody could do it except virtually nobody could have done it i have to say you you stepped into a uh um, into an interesting and challenging situation. I think it's more ma- masochism than sadism, but we can discuss that. But I, I love your attitude of that's all you have to do. and It's easy. Realizing how exceptionally difficult that is. Well, you know, and, and again, I think it comes to we get, you know, we get used to the, 
the cyclical nature of oil and gas and the pains <coughs> of doing it. And, you know, I think it was one of those things where we were at the bottom. We had to come up, you know, and, and you know, and honestly, along the way, uh, we've had the opportunity. We had, we had some great talent come into the organization, uh, guys that I'd worked, you know, the management team that we've got there now are guys we went out and recruited and brought in. They're, they're phenomenal. And, look, and when I came over, you know, one of the reasons that I came over was that I was going to get to work on the operations solely, and John Gibson came in as a CEO at the time, kind of between when I took over CEO, and John did a great job of getting air, air coverage for us to let us do mm-hmm. the things that we had to do to fix the business. And and I'll tell you, you know, John uh, John did a, a, some phenomenal things in, in coaching and, you know, exposing me to a multitude of things that I hadn't had the opportunity to see before. And, uh, you know, in terms with the board, investor relations, and he took me along to do a lot of those things, my first road shows and, 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 and you know, at that point in time, nobody's really interested in the story because the numbers didn't look that well. But yeah. the interest has, has kind of come back now. So uh, it, it's been a, it's been a good trip. I've enjoyed it. I love John, and I consider him a very good friend, and he's been a good friend for years. Being mentored by John Gibson has to be one of the more interesting things I can imagine somebody <laughs> ever doing. You know, we we John and I share we share a couple of things really in common. Uh, you know, John's a sharp guy. Yeah. You know, oh, he's brilliant. He, he's he's super intelligent. Uh, we share our faith together, and that gives us some common platforms to talk about a lot of things outside of work. Um, and we like to hunt and fish, and so we had a lot of good things like that. Now, the way that we look at you know technical execution is varies a little bit, but that's okay because I he was teaching me more of an abstract look holistically while yeah. I was so focused in and like nailing down the flawless execution component, right? Yeah. And uh, and then, you know, he would always give me these little projects to bring me out of my comfort zone and put some ambiguity in it and do those different things, which he loves ambiguity. <laughs> yes, <laughs> so, he does. And, uh, but, you know, it, it was great. And, and, you know, he and I, he and I, you know, to this day, you know, we, we text every now and then. We check up on each other. And he, Jeff he, Miller he and John job. Gibson and Rainey, you've had, you're right. You've had some. You've had a great bunch of educators along the way. And and I'll, I'll, I'll say that again. I'll throw Mike Kugentobler in there. You know, Mike Kugentobler came. He had a landmark background, but Mike ran ESA, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. He ran uh, the Middle East, Asia Pac, and Mike was phenomenal. I remember Coach. Mike from Landmark. He's super yeah. intelligent. He's, when I first he's met John, he was president of Landmark. Landmark, yeah. yeah. And uh, all, all those guys are great. You know, there's, there's you know, uh, Mark Richard and Shannon <laughs> Slocum and – I worked directly for Eric Carre. Um, yeah, you know, um, he was he was a VP of Eric, too. Yeah. you know all those guys, great yeah. guys, so. a solid group. Eric and Mark. And yeah, the, the really cool part is is that while you worked and learned from them, now you are one of them. <laughs> Congratulations! Well, I, I, I feel very honored to be in that. Even uh, well, and, you that sh- and you should. I feel honored to be. But it's really cool that, that you are. Wow. It, it's you know and again I I saw uh, we were at the national championship game down at NRG. Uh, you know, for you know the Washington Michigan deal, and I we had a we had some customers there, and I walked down and and went to the uh, Halliburton Suite and saw Mark and talked to Mark for about thirty minutes, and you know I walked in there and was just like I I had never left, knew everybody in there, you know, and uh, it's it's great, you know, and I you always can learn you know stuff from, and, I, and that's one of the things I would say even is is being humble about things, right, and 
you know, always, uh, always be curious and not judgmental like Walt Whitman says and, and learn and, and, and take things in all the time because you'd be amazed if you'd be quiet and just listen what you can pick up. <laughs> oh, yeah. I got a former Division One athlete with a Ph.D. quoting Walt Whitman. Uh, I just, just wanted to make sure that I had that right. Okay. <laughs> He's fun you, to are, talk you, to. you are an exceptionally interesting and diverse guy, <laughs> I, I have to tell you. So talk to us a little bit about what you're doing, though, to, to differentiate the business a little bit and, and some of the investments you all have made as it relates to technology to the extent you want to. So, I, so I'll start this out. One of, my, one of the themes that we've talked about at, at FlowTech since I've brought our management team in and stuff is I stick to um, uh, the movie Moneyball. Have you all seen Moneyball with, yeah. you know, about Billy Fabulous. Bean? Fabulous. And I love, I've got probably 20 presentations with that Moneyball sign on it and Mickey Mantle's initial quote, it's amazing what you don't know about the game you've been playing all your life. Yeah. And so, you know, when we talk about ways that we differentiate is, you know, when, when you look at, you know, Flowtech's DNA, chemistry's value creation, we've been doing green technology, green scorecards, all the stuff that everybody's been throwing out in the press you know, You've been doing. We've been doing for a decade and a half. So yeah. we consider that table stakes of what we do every day. And so um, we definitely got a differentiator there. We've got 170 intellectual property patents around those types of technologies. But what we've really tried to focus on is how do we create a handshake between total cost of ownership and environmental cost of ownership? Because make no mistake about it, you know, energy is required globally. Every single activity <coughs> that we do requires energy, and the various you know forms of energy or whatever you do are all going to have some type of environmental impact. So how can we utilize chemistry to create the most sustainable and responsible way to provide energy security for the globe? And I mean that that's the way we kind of look at business, the way that we innovate. Um, and I love the things like that. Chris Wright gets. I mean, Chris Wright has got this thing down, you know. And we talk about um, energy transition. I think of it more as energy diversification. It's like an accordion. It's always going to flex. You look at this past winter storm, if you look at ERCOT, oil and gas provide 90% of the energy. Yep. Renewal, you know, these sustainable things, we need them. But we have to understand there's a gap that's going to always expand and close. And we have to figure out a way to make those work in symbiosis and some type of harmony. And that's where we come in to play is that you know i think we fundamentally have a unique engineering approach to chemistry we brought in we acquired a company called jp3 because to me one of the things i learned in the past was if you wanted to improve your chemistry how do you monitor it faster and evolve it faster and your approach to using data to do that become extremely important and so as we brought jp3 in we looked at those two aspects how do we utilize spectroscopy which would be near infrared raman different components to advance how we look at things that are flowing in the pipeline coming out of the well the chemistry that goes down hole how do we really optimize that component to where not only are we putting the right chemistry down hole that gives you the best return on that investment but we're doing it at the lowest amount of chemistry required. And then we're monitoring the compositional changes that it come out to where we can look at production chemistry, yeah. what goes into refineries, transmix, re-vapor pressure measurements that have impacts on volume and you know different uh, mixing and refined fuels. So we've really evolved in that aspect around what we want to do. And you know, in my mind, when you start combining those, you look at a company that's not a commodity chemistry company. That's we're right. bringing some advanced looks that's better for the EBITDA multiples for shareholders, et cetera. But, you know, we've gone out and studied our wells 
and since 2021. I picked 2021 mainly because it was where we changed the strategy of how we did the delivery and the, the prescriptive chemistry management, et cetera. But it's also where you start looking at where the engineering changes kind of got uniform across the basins, right? Yeah. And from then till 2023, in almost every basin where we do our full prescriptive analytics, put our chemistry in play, we've got our engineers on site, we see on average 26 to 32% better flow out of the first 24 months than off-site wells were not used. That's material as heck. And we put, we've been including that in our uh, investor presentations. This is public available data through Inveris. And, you know, and what we also did was we took our data analytics division. We've completed 20,000 wells here in the U.S. in our existence. We went back and started creating cube analysis of these <laughs> to look at what chemistries are used. And we started looking at the physical chemical properties of these various reservoirs between what type of water, what type of produced water, what you know, what the hydrocarbons looked like, what the composition of the uh, reservoir was, and what we what we found was was that we could pretty much dial in by putting if we got five properties from the from the EMP operator on where they were going to go, we can almost diagnose the chemistry digitally and start testing and get in there faster than running a month worth of testing. We can do it in about two days. You remind me of Core Lab when you talk about that. You really do. <laughs> yeah, and You're so, changing it from an R&D exercise to a real-time operating exercise. It, it's all about the DOE using the data that you've already had yeah. and, and, and moving that. So, and what we saw that happened in our operation was I had 6,000 SKUs of products. We're down to 250. And right now we're actually full-time. Op- and I, I would say 50 out of that 250 represent 80% of our spend. We turn chemicals like a grocery store now. Our turn rates are about 14 and so you look at it, you know how do we manage capital to grow without putting any debt on the balance sheet and those pieces we you know we we brought all these things in i think that we're doing some things that are innovative not only on the technology side but you know how we how we look at you know, diagnosis and the different components there yeah i think jp3 is a hidden gem i know and, it's and not listen, hidden but you know and, and, and speaking of that too i mean you look at we bought the technology with its strength in the in the midstream and in terms of we can look at transmix applications because typically you have an, an intermingling interface and they'll let that interface flow for say 10 seconds and it's costing forty thousand dollars a second that they're letting that waste product go through and then they know it's clean and it'll cut it off we can monitor it and actually cut that down to four seconds so six seconds at forty thousand a second is a quarter million dollars every interchange that we save those companies and we're doing that multiple times a day. That's worth some money, huh? That's worth a couple of bucks, yeah. yeah. And so then we got to look at applications and we worked with Profrac. You know, we want to run, we got all the stranded field gas. And we can actually monitor the BTU quality of gas in real time, take a measurement every three seconds. And so we were like, well, heck, if you got to protect this uh, frac equipment and you want to run it off field gas and not run the high dollar CNG, we have a, um, we have a fuel skid that goes out there that we flow the field gas directly into it. And as soon as it sees a BTU spike, it has a dead man switch, diverse to flow to a blend down tank with CNG to bring the BTUs down. As soon as the slug goes through, it goes right back to field gas. The first three well pad that we had this thing on, we saved almost a million gallons of diesel from being burned. And we had a 92% conversion rate to field gas. Wow. Well, in the day of age of bifuel being increasingly and dramatically important to get to work 
that's uh that's a that's a and goose's golden egg. And for me, the one of the holy grails that we're looking at is we've got this new new technology come out. It's called our generation or Gen three model that's in the field being tested right now. Where one of the bottlenecks we had in JV three on this acquisition was we had to get to large scale manufacturing and better cost structures and really hone the device in. And so now we have one that we can actually leave at every wellhead. So why could that become important? Well, when you look at right now, for the resource owner and or the crude traders or the people that are buying on the back end, they take a composite analysis every six months and they base what they pay on that one sample. And there's always these fluctuations. We can measure it every three seconds while it's flowing and we give a pulse check versus that composite analysis over in real time data lake over these, these months. And we've seen as much as 10 or 15% variance from what that composite is. So if somebody's getting underpaid or overpaid by that. Wow. And so when you look at custody and uh, chain of custody transfer, uh, it, can be an, it can be a differentiator for doing that. And more importantly, you know, right now, if you look at production chemistry, there's thousands of light duty trucks on the road. You and I, you know, yeah. you and I talked about this. We can actually look at the compositional changes and water changes that are taking place at the production we could diagnose chemistry without having to send somebody out to the out to site, you know, to do testing. And well, so you're you're saying all the things that everybody's trying to accomplish, taking people, you know, out of the field, optimized timing, more cause, automation. Because you know, traveling on the road is dangerous, right? Yeah. And, and you look at emissions components and all the different pieces, cost. Um, and you know, I'm not saying you won't have to have them go out there and do some testing every now and when you when you detects a change. Sure. But uh, a lot of things, it would be able to diagnose uh, the changes on a treater truck. So there's a lot of cool things that, that I think that we are bringing that are differentiated that, you know, um, we, we've got to do a better job out in, out in the public markets. And one of the things that the CFO, uh, Bon Clement, and I are doing, we're getting out doing a lot of these non-deal roadshows, conferences, and speaking to really bring some of the interesting things that we're doing uh, back to the forefront here at, at Floatech. I think it's great. I mean, I always, I've had a... A, uh, a history with Flowtech, previous management, and uh, there's some really, you know, really neat intellectual property that was held in the business. It's, I'm glad to see somebody like yourself that that has the educational background to unlock some of that potential and add and build upon uh, what was there because I think there's some neat opportunities for the business. But uh, I have to introduce you, my buddy Christian Palmas. He he basically built the world's largest underground winery. And, you know, he's able to. If he were sitting here, we could be looking at his wine tanks via his, you know, uh, iPad. Analyze the level of sulfites and. Uh... <laughs> yeah, so just kind of like tending to well, kind of similar to what you're talking about. You know, real time analysis. In theory, he can build the perfect bottle of wine because he's able to control temperature and one inch increments and barrels and dose the wine with antibiotics when necessary and whatever and we we looked at it right in terms of the chemistry business look you're always going to be battled in chemistry of you making it you make a innovative change it's instantly being pushed to commoditization Mm -hmm. and one of the things that we from a, a strategic standpoint needed was to bring some data component to that right and I, I call it as it's the turbocharger uh, for, for, for helping our chemistry sales. But more importantly, where the company wants to go as far as being a, a intellectually focused organization, JP3 is a is a great vehicle for what we're doing there. And you know we've had um, 
unfortunately, you know, it got it got stalled a bit with COVID, right? It's hard to talk to people about some new, really nice technology if you have to do it on Zoom all the time. It's difficult. Yes. Um, but now we're really starting to make some 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 good strides and pushes, and uh, uh, we're excited about it. Well, I don't think people realize uh, after taking organic chemistry in college the level of technology that chemistry is. Most people think if it doesn't have a chip to it, it well, it can't really be technology. <laughs> well, they didn't take Dr. Jeske's organic chemistry class. Um, I, ju- I just think it's, but you're right. The biggest problem is it gets commoditized quickly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and and we've seen compressors and engines get, how commoditized can you be? Yet the, the biofuel capability, the constant monitoring for predictive maintenance capability, uh, the automatic uh, uh, you know, SCADA systems where I don't have to have a guy drive and check everything every day. That's where life is going to. The methane mm-hmm. emissions, now we, you know, I'll check it every month. And it's like, no, you'll have continuous monitoring or we'll could put you down, which has to be something that you look at. But everything's going to real-time data, mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter what your product is, chemicals or sand or anything else. Uh, 100%. And I mean, even the way we do logistics is is the same way, right? I mean, we we've gone through um, a, a lot of automation components around how we. It was amazing. Like again, you know, I had initial thought about how we we're delivering chemistry in the field in terms of milk runs versus long hauls and different pieces like that. And then, you know, we built some models for it. And I was like, you know what? As much as we spend on logistics a year, it'd be worth getting someone like a Deloitte or someone to come in here and let them analyze to see if we're right come in and look and of course they came in and took a look and we were relatively spot on but what the findings that we found were complete opposite of what i thought in terms of where we would buy and own our trucks versus where do we use third-party transfer and so it it was it's look we learn something new every day and this automation piece is accelerates uh how fast we do it you know and you know again i I think there's there's pros and cons of some of the stuff that's in ai these sure what do they call those those uh ripple memory issues where yeah. it makes a it, it learns something a neural network can learn it's only as good as the data that goes into it it can make a wrong assumption if you've got wrong data mm-hmm. right uh we looked at doing some of that in our autonomous drilling things back in the past we we're putting bad mud data in there and it gives bad projections yeah. uh, and so you know in, in in this case we always had to be careful cognizant of those but i had a chemistry professor one time told me he said ron doesn't matter too much of anything it's too much," he said. So there's always that unique balance of how you look at things and the intuition and trust on how, how you run some of this technology. So, pretty unique. I have fond memories of my, one of my former organic chemistry professors. We used to uh, make uh, libations in the in the lab. Uh, you had a much more creative uh, <laughs> professor than I did. I like that. Doctor Booker, Doctor Barbara Booker. She was a lot of fun. But uh, anyway. Well, I think it's fascinating to hear what you're doing um, at Flowtech, and I and I think with JP3, the things y'all are doing, I think is is going to put you in a enviable spot. Um, you know, you've had a fascinating uh, start of your life. You're, you've certainly got more years ahead, and I look forward to seeing you accomplish many things. But um, at this stage in your life, having experienced as much of you you have. Um, you know, we typically like to ask our guests if they if they have anything that they have learned that they'd love to share with with uh, their younger self or or 
or friends and family. Mm-hmm. And don't know if you've got any words of wisdom you'd like to share with us. You know, I, I honestly, you know, when I, when I look at it, um, you know, I start every, every now and then you got to kind of take a personal inventory a bit between your professional and your personal life, et cetera. And you start looking for these, these, these common themes you see along, along the way. And, you know, one thing I, my dad's always taught me along the way that has stuck with me and I would tell anybody coming up is my dad was all, no matter what I did when I was growing up, he'd look at me when I would, we would be rapping somebody's like, did you finish it? Like, did you finish what you started one way or the other? Sometimes that is knowing when to fold them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's knowing when to push it through, but always have a, an awareness of where you are in these processes on don't ever leave them hanging, you know, uh, have some integrity about yourself, have some character about yourself and finish the things that you start and execute one way or the other and, and be, you know, and, and own, be accountable for those things is something that I would say I learned the way. And I read a book, uh, a guy named Rob Regner. I used to do some leadership training with Rob Bannett was my manager when I first came to Saudi. Rob's awesome guy. And, um, you know, he gave me, we, we talked about accountability and he gave me, we, I put all, he used to put all my guys through Oz accountability training Yeah, where you look at Webster's definition of accountability versus it's an opportunity to take something on and, and make it better. Right. And, you know, and, and that, those are things that, that really, you know, push me because I would say today, it doesn't matter what generation gap you go through your personal life, professional life, et cetera, character, integrity, and finishes things you start are cornerstones and foundational pillars that will never let you down if you stick to those. Well put. And and I don't know, you know, unfortunately, we've seen an evolution away from some of those things, uh, you know, in a multitude of facets, in the nuclear families, in stuff we see in business uh, mm-hmm. and different components, whereas that's the blocking and tackling of success, in my opinion. Um, the other things I would say is, is, is I mentioned it, you know, you know, staying humble and staying curious because it doesn't matter how much you think you know about something you're going to run across. It could be a new hire, but they may see something. It's like, the, I look at like kids, kids will walk in and they'll say the, the, the damnedest things. And you're like, Oh, you know, and, and always be willing to listen to that one person that'll, that'll say those things and take it back and process it a bit. And then, you know, the other thing that I, is, is like, you know, staying competitive and never getting complacent. Um, it's probably the most frustrating, you know, thing about me that my wife hates the most is, and, I, and honestly, I've had to kind of address it a bit in my personal life because I never was happy. It was like, put the straps on, pull to that finish line, and when I stepped across that finish line, I was Quit. taking those straps off, putting new ones on, looking for the next one. Right. And and I think it's just because, you know, as competitive athletes and the competitiveness you pick up along your career, you're always afraid. If you're not going, somebody else is. That's right. And, you know, um, and, and those are things that you, you've got to learn to temper appropriately in how you manage your time. Because I'm telling you, if, if you had 24 hours a day, a job will take 25 if you let it. Yeah. You got to figure out that balance, and so th- those are things I would tell, you know, young people coming up that that really, you know, make a big difference. And most of those things, you know, uh, my dad, my mom, I was lucky. 
you know, they taught me those things at a young age. And it's amazing, though, the evolutionary way you look at it through your careers, you get different experiences and different lenses and how they change. And, you know, it's funny because a lot of guys that work with me now knew me when I was younger. And I don't want to say I was hot-headed, but I was temperamental <laughs> when I was younger. <laughs> volatile. <laughs> yeah, volatile. volatile. And now they see things happen and they expect something from me and I'm very, you know, docile about it because you, you said a, a really important thing earlier, uh, Jim, is that, you know, when you, in a big organization, there's always a layer. And now you are the layer and every single person, what you, everything you look at is under a microscope. If you get flustered, if you get upset, if you get that, because you don't realize that little rock ripple you drop in a pond, it could be causing a tidal wave on the other end. So being very uh, uh, composed and, and not getting shaken or, or just just a few tricks of the trade. Um, but, you know, kind of preparing for this, I, you know, I was hoping we would, we would kind of talk about this because I've stuck to, and I, I just thought it was important to say these things, every chance I've had to run operations and run a, a team or anything, I've stuck to about six basic things every single time. And... Every time I take over a country, company, division, segment, we'd have a kickoff meeting. We'd first we do an audit to see the condition of the business. Yeah. And I would sit down and I would tell them that, you know, number one, safety is always your first condition of employment. Don't care what you do. You know, if you look at a safety driven organization, typically you're gonna find things that make it better financially, one way or the other. Absolutely. You know, Culture. and yeah. I stay focused on process execution, understanding what success looks like doing those different pieces and executing there. Um, and then uh, we talked about open and respectful communication. There's nothing worse than being a team member and not knowing where you are, where you're going. So having that understanding of where you're supposed to be, how what you're doing aligns with the overall strategy of the company and make sure that communication stays consistent. That's one thing I picked up from Jeff. Jeff was just like, man, when well, he's at Bayroyd, <laughs> Engineer fluid solutions, customize and maximize well bore value. I mean, it was just like driven into us. I, I swear I probably got a tattoo on me somewhere with that on it, right? And um, I think he said that on our podcast. He did. Too, he, I mean, it? it's like, you know, and I'll remember, I'll remember that the day I die, you know, And it, but that's consistency around that. And then I said, be innovative and be accountable. And then my last thing that I always tell everybody is finish what you start. And so that'll I'll get off my soapbox about these things right but that's what no, I would tell my young self box. it's a great soapbox I would tell my young self those things I'm glad he stopped at six because I can't cast, count past ten you know <laughs> I can finish what you things. start though that's an excellent one yeah um, I, I got lucky and had a fabulous father as well who was a, a brilliant and good man he's always he, he will always be my hero and and integrity in all things be truthful in all things and finish what you start. He said, if you do those three things, mm -hmm. life works. I could be in more alignment. <laughs> That's a good Mississippi boy coming to that too. I, <laughs> if, if I figured that y'all were about 30 miles apart at most, your father and my father. I would imagine. At, yeah. at most. That's <laughs> most of their young lives. So, Well, that was good stuff. I appreciate you coming on. Hey, this, is, this has been awesome. Uh, you know, I, I've got a massive amount of respect for both of you. And uh, having the opportunity to come on here and just, you know, talk about, you know, career opportunities, talk about some great organizations, some great people. Uh, you know, and I feel blessed all the time. Um, you know, it, it's – I think you, the more you step back and look, I, I drive to work some mornings. I don't even turn the radio on anymore. I just sit there and I'll think about things or what it was. And, 
you get you get more and more humble about them every day to say you've been in the you know across the years been in the presence of some really great individuals um, and some great opportunities and some great cultures and you know um, I'll never forget being in I was in Saudi when they tore the Pearl Roundabout down in Bahrain and all yeah. the, you know and, and you, you know you just go through these things and it's just hours of storytelling and you, you know a bunch of my buddies like you should write a book I'm like ah people will get tired of it after a bit but you know it's they it's don't. just it's just pretty uh it's just amazing and I, I'm, I'm so blessed to be able to do it i really am well i would encourage you as is as, as i have a number of friends and this is something jim and i were talking about the other day is is that uh people people like the storytelling and and i would encourage you uh with your very fascinating life thus far and and it's certainly not going to be over anytime soon to to take the time to either write those memories down or or record them into a these days just dictate them occasionally this is you know let me and just do individual stories there was this time when we were in singapore and i remember and just do those you know nobody's looking you know those are the stories that are entertaining and educational at the same time and I've found myself doing it mainly because I write too much these days. <laughs> but I'll be driving down the highway, and I'll just think of something that's a story I want to record. And I do. And sometimes it ends up in my weekly, and thank God most of the time it doesn't. But I'm keeping them all, and I'm going to give them to my kids. And we, my daughter just sent me a, a, Chris, a, a birthday video where she was recounting the most important things we have done, I have been to her life. And 90% of them were a surprise. I'm like, wow, that was that important to you? So I, I, I agree. That's what you should do. Tell these stories, record them, and save them for your kids when you're old. You know, and, and I'm, I'm glad to hear you guys say that's some good encouragement. And, you know, I was talking to my, my father-in-law. He and I, you know, my mother-in-law passed away this past summer, and so I call and talk to him quite a bit. Um, and, you know, I was telling him, you know, I have these, these major concerns around, you know, challenges in our industry these days because – we've got to get out there and be more positive about the story about what we do in the energy sector, you know, in terms of how much it's going to be needed and get the factual things. I think Alex Epstein does a great job yeah. out there talking, you know, his energy talking points and those things. You've got to get out there and, and we've got to be telling that story consistently, truthfully, and with integrity around those pieces are because, you know, there's this constant cloud over what we do. And I don't think people – fully understand there's a few commercials has been out now about what all this thing supplies but you know if you like your dry fit clothes if you like your makeup if you like all these all these things are come from hydrocarbons yeah you know and getting out there and telling that story because the negative light on there gives us problems in the investment community capital support the lack of interest there and, and more importantly guys what i'm more concerned about is the ability to recruit talent for the future that's the biggest issue and it's a pain that's point, the biggest you know? issue it, it it is a concern, but I um every time I start to go dark and think about that, I I meet some young person that that's got their head screwed on straight, so mm-hmm. it gives me a little bit of faith and confidence that uh, they're that not that all. gap will bridge. Yeah, but but still not enough. And um, you know, I think the other big issue too, and I've I've mentioned this now a couple of times publicly that. One, the industry's not done a very good job educating right. folks, but nor has the educational system done a very oh. good job educating. And when you think about oil and gas, if that's what we're talking about, there is the 
the transportation fuel and power generation capability of oil and gas in one bucket over here. And then you've got the petrochemistry and its derivatives in this other bucket over here. Which is everything in our lives. And nobody talks about that part. At all. They want to talk about transportation and power. And, and I don't disagree that there's better ways to generate electricity, which is, which is great. I think it's small modular nuclear reactor stuff, thorium Amen. stuff. Yes. Yep. Um, there's still a place for natural gas. Uh, but think about where we came from. Mm-hmm. And I joke with, with somebody the other day, he said, like, oil and gas industry, we ought, we ought to put out a big billboard to say we save the whales. People go, what are you talking about? I go, well, if you knew anything about history, you would know we basically wiped out the global population of whales so we could read at night. Mm-hmm. You know, people don't know that. They don't appreciate that. And so it's an evolution. And this this uh, sky is falling, uh, catastrophizing um, position these people are taking. You've really got to ask, do they really care? Or is this just a way for them to line their pockets? And... It's a way for them to line their pockets and get power, and it just power, yeah. just, yep. just just disgusts me. But the petrochemistry part, like we may find alternatives to 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 power and fuel, uh, although I don't really like those alternatives unless it's nuclear. Uh, burn more trees. I don't want to be uh, yeah, burn more trees. <laughs> I don't necessarily want to be on a battery operated airplane. There's just mm. something that, like that doesn't work, but. Um, you know, as it relates to the petrochemistry stuff, I mean, it's in everything we do. Mm-hmm. Food, antibiotics, everything that makes life uh, survivable and our ability to adapt. And, and it just, it's mind-boggling to me how ignorant people have allowed themselves to become with their emotions. And, you know, very good but bad campaigns of, of information put out by these groups i watched a uh i watched a video the other day of uh uh, uh, senate hearing i guess it was a congressional hearing and a woman was advocating the end of plastics and one of the congressmen started asking her well okay what about your glasses and she goes what do you mean well (laughs) they're plastic well what about your phone oh it's glass no i'm talking about the internal components and he would name something and she'd go oh no that's not what that is and he goes well yes it is and it was everything she had on. And, of course, nobody watches congressional hearings. So, uh, you know, I don't like weeds <laughs> like me. So, but, but, you know, I've always said we need to put our ads on the National Enquirer yes. at the shopping center stands yep. instead of page three of the Wall Street Journal. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, that's the thing. And, uh, when I was in graduate school at Southern Miss, and we, you, you take your first intro year, all the organic chemistry, is it starts at crude. Yes. A molecule say crude, and then write all your reactions out to get to where you want. And before yeah. you know it, you're at polyaramid fibers, which is what you make bulletproof vests out of, <laughs> or you know, wherever you want to go. Yeah, and and it starts right there every single time. And it, it's pretty amazing, right? The most organic thing there is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this has been good. I Thanks, hope this Ryan. won't be our last conversation. I hope not. You know, hopefully, um, you know, I hope I hope to keep you know making a little bit of wave in the oil and gas and energy sectors for a bit and i'm i enjoy it every single day you know i, I every aspect about my job i'm one of those guys that i like coming to work i, I enjoy it a lot and um 
you know, I don't, um, whatever capacity that continues in. I, my wife told me, she said, I'd never retire. And she said, you would drive me crazy if you're at home. And she That's said, right. you'll probably be consulting or, or doing something because my mind will drive me crazy. I'll be trying to figure out how to do something ridiculous on an engineering side if I'm not doing some kind of work. <laughs> yeah. Do you know Jeremy Thigpen? That name sounds familiar. I need to introduce you to Jeremy. You guys have so much in common, it's scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we need to get Thigpen on here, too. We'll get him on here. Yeah. Well, thank okay. you guys Thanks, so Ryan. much. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it. It's been an honor. Thank you. Well, thank you. Well, thank you all for joining us. Um, look forward to uh, producing more conversations with uh, great people and friends, and uh, appreciate you listening. Thanks, David. Thanks, Jim. The Oil Field 360 podcast is brought to you by the following sponsors. Locked in Global Energy and Marine, uncommonly independent. Locked in is the world's largest privately owned insurance broker and risk finance advisor. Locked in's global energy expertise is centered in Houston and represents the largest concentration of energy specialists, clients, and experiential knowledge in the upstream, midstream, and downstream segments of the oil and gas industry. Visit LockedIn.com for more information. Upright Digital. Upright Digital specializes in partnering with your business to maximize marketing efficiencies. We have a deep understanding of people, their needs, motivations, behaviors, as well as the technologies that enable brands in many industries to utilize what is available in a changing digital landscape. Find us online at UprightDigital.com.